Welcome to the crossover episode of League One Fun and the USL Show. We're presented by the Beautiful Game Network and brought to you by Roughneck Scarves. Please subscribe, rate, and review both of those shows on your favorite podcast app. I'm Ira Jersey of League One Fun. Phil Groom said that I could throw this on the USL Show feed as well because I'm here speaking with athletic writer Jeff Reuter about USL Winter League meetings. Jeff, thanks very much for joining us today. I thought you were supposed to be the one who couldn't pronounce words. Reuter is actually right. <laughs> You're like the only podcast host who has ever pronounced my last name right. So anytime I, they put you down for that, you tell them otherwise. It's the very first time I think I've done that with, with any name that wasn't like John Smith. or <laughs> so, <laughs> sure. so, so, Jeff, before we start, let's start getting into you know how you got involved ultimately writing with The Athletic. I know that you used to be a podcast host yourself. Yeah, I've had a couple of shows in my day, which I, I feel like is is pretty commonplace these days with soccer fandom. Um, I began, I was a season ticket holder during the NASL era during uh, for the uh, for Minnesota United. And during that time, I was out in the crowd uh, with my brother, who I went to every game with. And there was a guy next to me whose podcast co-host had just resigned. And so the guy leans over to me and says, hey, uh, I need someone who can help co-host my show for the next few weeks until I can find a real host. Uh, it sounds like you're talking intelligently about the game. Would you just want to jump on? So um, just this guy I'd never really talked to. His name's Nachikit Karnik. Uh, the show is two United fans. And so it started on that, ended up becoming that real host that he was looking for. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, from there, it's just been bouncing around over the last five years with a lot of freelancing um, with Northern Pitch and then 55-1, The Guardian, ESPN, MLS Soccer, yada, yada, yada. And uh, yeah, then the athletic comes along. Um, I, I buried my fan allegiance to Minnesota United when they made the move from the lower leagues to MLS, uh, which was a surprisingly easy thing to do. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I mean, ever since I've been covering uh, Minnesota United and some MLS, but also, uh, especially this year, I've been um, really going back to my roots and covering more of the lower divisions of U.S. soccer, especially the USL. Yeah, we're always very excited. So obviously, at the Beautiful Game Network, we care a lot about lower league soccer. I mean, we care about major league soccer as well. But obviously, our, our focus is those lower divisions. And it's great when you were able to break some stories and, and bring us some news. Um, you know, some of, the, some of the things that you've broken, I guess, over the past year, what's the one or two stories that you've broken about lower division soccer that you think might be have been the most impactful? Oh man, that's big. Um, that's that's a really good question. Uh, so I, I think there's there's two ways to do it. I mean, some of them are big. Like, yes, uh, top breaking news that Tim Howard is going to be the general manager for Memphis. That's big on a national level. That gets more traction. Or breaking, um, you know, transfer fees between uh, a League One club and a, a Championship club, which that's we big. will 100% get into. Oh, I bet that's where the crossover really comes in, right? Um, yeah, so, you know, things like that, that, that can be big, uh, news about expansion markets, like when Des Moines, uh, got the conditional approval, should they get a stadium breaking? That is cool because I do frankly think that the Midwest should have more second and third division clubs. Uh, I think Omaha is, has potential, uh, to be a very good market for league one. Uh, Madison obviously showed that people can withstand the cold and still like soccer. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think stuff like that is special, but I think that there's also the, the profile side of it. So a lot of what I do falls into one of two or three buckets, uh, which is breaking news, um, analysis of actually X's and O's on field, whatever, watching games. And then, uh, more so, I guess like kind of the storytelling, um, or 
uh, feature writing sort of thing. And so whether that's writing about um, being in St. Louis when they beat FC Cincinnati and the emotion that you could see on those players uh, and how the lifeblood of that tournament really does live with non-MLS clubs, or it's talking to someone like Troy Lassan and getting to talk to his old college coach and hear how emotional he got about how far Troy's come in his career uh, before Troy came up to Minnesota and, and being able to speak with him after the game a little bit too. Stuff like that is really impactful. But I, I mean, if, if I'm talking purely about like the most impactful story I was able to tell, it was with uh, Chris Malineb speaking about uh, his campaign for mental health awareness in the wake of surviving a suicide attempt this last winter, uh, the Reno 1868 assistant coach. Um, I mean, that's, that, that's a point where it becomes more important than just sports and fandom and everything like that. So um, being able to speak with him uh, about that and have him open up and share his story, um, the messages that I got in the aftermath of people who said they were impacted by that. Uh, that's, you, can't, you can't really imagine doing that when he started as you know, someone in the supporters section who just suddenly starts talking about the sport you love, and then um, certainly not when you start just getting into the serious sports writer shtick. So um, that was pretty special. And it, those human interest stories, I think, always wind up crossing over a lot. And when you talk about everything from mental health and now in the game, obviously, um, you know, racism has become a big issue with mm-hmm. things going on in Italy and elsewhere. Um, you know, how do you how do you adjust, I guess, from writing the pure soccer related stuff over to the more feature articles and the human element of the game? You know, I, I think that there's, it's a really good question, because I, I think when people look at, <laughs> when people look at, excuse me, their favorite sports writer, they always, you'll see just getting inundated with stick to sports. And I'm somebody who, after mass shootings, you know, I, I'm very vocal about, um, I mean, my opposition to gun violence and murder, which I feel like shouldn't be a controversial thing. Um, but there's a lot of people who will say, you know, hey, stick to sports, I don't follow, for you, follow you for that, whatever, which, which just rubs me the wrong way, too. But, um, you know, I, I think that... The, the reality of it, and, and you could say that this is about all sports, but I really do think it is, especially with a game that is as global and as universal as soccer, is that it's inevitable that issues about race will show up because fans and cultures and players are of every race under the sun that play the sport. Um, and the same thing could be said about people on sexual orientation uh, or about mental health. Um, and I, I think the important thing is soccer is the vehicle but it's not who's driving it and so these stories chris's story it, it, it's about a human who's uh using his profile in reno uh to really raise awareness about something that affects millions and millions and millions of americans much less people across the world um or you talk to someone like colin martin who played for hartford athletic on loan this year from minnesota united who came out as openly gay uh in 2018 uh, you know, that impacts a lot of people and just the sheer number of people even who he said would came out to him over the next few months say, hey, I wasn't brave enough to do this until I saw you come out and I realized I could achieve whatever I want to being who I am and I want to do that as soon as I can. That stuff is impactful. And that's still, you know, wrapped up in this whole kind of soccer thing that at its core, right? Like I'm a I'm a soccer fan. I love this sport. I love the people in the sport. But that's where the stories come in from. I wholeheartedly agree, and I think when when you mix the element of the sport with with the humanity behind it, it, it brings a whole new element to the community that is being built around U.S. soccer. Um, but I would like to 
pivot a little bit away. So you spent last week, um, the second week of December, in Orlando, Florida, at the USL League meetings. All three leagues were represented, uh, represented mm-hmm. uh, Championship, League One, and League Two. So, but, so to start, let's talk about something that impacts all three of those leagues, and that's the chatter around the new U.S. Open Cup format. So for those of you who don't know, the U.S. Open Cup will start earlier this year. Uh, the third and uh, excuse me, the fourth division teams will actually come in in the first round now, which will, will begin in March. Uh, so this is a big deal for USL League Two as well as NPSL teams because their rosters typically are made up almost solely with college players who wouldn't be able to play because that's during the school year. Um, NCAA rules preclude college students from playing before May 1st. So, Jeff, what what was some of the discussion during the league meetings, especially, I guess, from the League 2 crowd, about this new format? And then, and then maybe if there was positive or negative news uh, and feelings for uh, the format from, from the other leagues as well. Oh man, I, I wish I could tell you about the League One or League Two side of this. Uh, the reality is that uh, League Two's meetings were actually probably even more extensive <laughs> than the championships or League Ones to the point where they weren't really often in the same area. Um, and at that point, I was I was speaking with uh, trying to confirm that Miami FC story, which I broke um, uh, half a day before and a few hours before it came out um, officially, and and then speaking with other topics as well for both the Notebook and the other stuff I'm working on. Uh, for the athletics. So I, unfortunately, I wasn't able to get their side of it. Um, I do know some NPSL clubs are excited about it, the ones that are uh, confident in their abilities to pull from, let's say, if they have a partner kind of men's league club that plays in the non-league amateur um, uh, pre-qualifier leagues, if that makes sense, or the pre-qualifying rounds. Uh, sometimes there will be, for example, like Minneapolis City uh, has a long-standing kind of uh, not a partnership or affiliation, but they share a lot of the same figures uh, who are part of Stegman's Old Boys, who uh, is a club that has been around Minneapolis for a long time. And so they'll be able to pull from them if the college players can't play. Um, but that will affect them. I mean, it, you, you laid it out very well. And when you hear that most of your most talented players and most of the core of your roster that will carry you through the season won't be eligible, that's a problem. I will say, though, that clubs that are in the second and third rung of the ladder are very excited about this because it means that uh, they won't be picking each other off so that one of them can play an MLS club. Now, with 11 MLS clubs joining around sooner, uh, it does mean that, uh, first off, those are the more susceptible clubs to losing, frankly, because of the way that they'll be selected off the pre-qualifiers of uh, which clubs will enter later. But it also does mean that should you upset one for MLS clubs, you're not going to just have those really weird dead rubber round of 32 games where... You have two MLS clubs who are entering the tournament at the same time with no momentum or no interest in the tournament, and they're playing each other like it's a you know midseason friendly or something, which is how a lot of clubs uh, unfortunately treated it. So I do think it's a positive move I, for the professional clubs, for the uh, non-professional clubs, for the amateur clubs. It is going to be more of a struggle. Uh, I'm not sure how you could strike that balance otherwise, though, and I, I think unfortunately it's um, that's just how the structure of the league works. You don't have a true professional fourth division in this country right now and you're probably many years away uh, at the rate if you look at how long it took to get a league like league one uh, into the ecosystem as well 
Yeah, and just uh, I'm just going to bring up some uh, some quick stats that that I found, and and this was from the Cup.us. And if you don't follow them on Twitter, you should because the U.S. Open they cover everything from the U.S. Open Cup preliminary rounds and that uh, you know you know just occurred all the way up through uh, obviously the final that'll happen next summer. But eighty there have been eighty two upsets where a professional team lost to a USL two or an NPSL team in the modern era, um, and uh, that that's that's since uh, MLS was founded. In 1996, and 75% of those upsets, um, you know, came from the uh, came from those two groups. So, um, yeah, you know, and obviously the rest are teams like Christos, uh, who uh, um, who beat the the kickers a couple of years ago. Um, so, you since you mentioned it, let's talk a little bit about Miami FC. You know, th- I think that was a huge shock to just about everyone that they were coming over, and they had just played with Nisa for the first time. That the 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 independent soccer uh, soccer league here uh that uh, now has eight teams you know everyone thought that uh miami was going to be one of the linchpin clubs within that nascent league um you know any word about you know how that came about and and what the reasoning was for the club to uh to make that move uh yeah i I think that some of this will be coming up soon i've got an interview with ricardo silva uh in the works and so uh, keep your eyes out for that um you'll be able to hear kind of firsthand why this came to be but i think that a lot of the look of it was um a lack of being impressed with some of the machinations of NISA or its clubs. Uh, you certainly don't expect for a situation like Philadelphia Fury to arise uh, even five years into a league's existence, much less within the first semester, so to speak. Uh, and so having that uh, seriously cast a, a major shadow over the rest of the league and the reputation of every club that entered it, um, and, and frankly still is um, cast over NISA right now to the point where a lot of people um, within the USL don't even, you know, acknowledging it doesn't necessarily come with the gravitas of when you would mention the NASL at these kind of meetings three, four years ago, I'll put it that way. Um, so that's, that's big. Uh, I think, so I think that was a part of it. Obviously the NPSL wasn't going to be a fit for a, a team that's paying professional wages, um, to players like Dylan Mayers. Uh, that's just not going to be a feasible business model. Um, and then, I mean, if I'm being honest, like, look, you, you can't, talk about Miami FC joining the USL championship without talking about the, uh, uh, the, the open elephant in the room, which is to say, if the USL is serious about these claims, which it very much is these claims that they're interested in having promotion, rele- <clears throat> excuse me, promotion relegation involved in some capacity, Miami FC is going to want to be at that table because that has been a long time interest of Ricardo Silva's to bring, um, promotion and relegation into the United States soccer ecosystem. Obviously, that was part of uh, why he was so bullish on the NASL over its final two full seasons. Uh, there's the $4 billion offer to Major League Soccer uh, if they would have an open system, which they obviously laughed out of the room. Uh, for worse or for better, it's up to you to decide. Uh, but then, of course, if, if there is going to be this kind of movement between League One and the championship, uh, whether that would be before the new TV deal in 2020, after the 2022 season, or this would be five, 10 years down the road. Uh, that is very much something that Miami FC would want to be a part of. And that is a watershed moment that Ricardo Silva would probably want some part uh, of the process of orchestrating that change. So uh, I really do think it's the right league at the right time. Um, two years ago, this would not have made any sense given where the USL was, uh, and especially how it was seen as more of an MLS kind of affiliate league, even for the independent clubs that were kind of stuck with that reputation. Uh, now it really is a good step for the USL um, 
and for Miami FC. So another new club going into the championship down in Miami. Interestingly, uh, that, that means starting this coming season, Miami will actually have a team at every level of the game because they'll have uh, obviously the Beckham MLS team as well as Miami FC and also um, an expansion team because Inter-Miami's uh, U, uh, uh, B team uh, will be um, – will be in USL League One starting mm-hmm. next year. So, so, so that's interesting. I think that might be the first time that we're going to have a, um, a city like that. And it's a city that you know, hasn't had soccer at any professional level for, uh, since NASL uh, uh, folded. How about um, USL Championship? So I know you mentioned in your article, which we'll have a link in the show notes uh, to that, what is um, what was the talk around championship expansion in particular? And then we'll talk about League One in a few minutes. But uh, there, you mentioned in your article that there were a lot of teams there looking at different um, different potential for expansion all throughout the country. So, you know, is there anyone close in the championship? Does it seem like? Well, I think that a lot of those are, are pretty well documented. Whether it's a place like Midfield Press or it's going to be through. Uh, other kind of market specific or the athletics announcements of or not announcements but breaking news and kind of excavating some of the details of these bids like my my colleague Pablo Marrer uh, the day after the meetings closed up put out a report about Baltimore who their owner would be what the stadium site is um, really starting to kind of show some tangible progress for that bid that has kind of long been seen as just kind of a rumored wouldn't it be nice if Baltimore had a, a USL championship club But I think if you're looking beyond that, I mean, obviously, Des Moines is still trying to make some progress on their stadium push. Uh, Queensboro FC is probably going to have uh, its brand out already into the public by the end of this offseason, which could be very big, uh, just to try to be able to get some sort of groundswell in a very congested soccer market of New York. Um, But I think a lot of those clubs, the the 19 representatives that were in that expansion track, uh, there's almost no chance that all 19 kick a ball over the next five years or 10 years or ever. I I think a lot of that would be, yes, some groups like Queensboro, uh, who's been confirmed and is going through this, or San Diego Loyal, who are, you know, getting some of the final sort of business metrics. This is the first time that the league's ever had an expansion-specific track in its um, winter summit. And so I think any club that's joining this year, uh, Union Omaha included, and also the two MLS affiliates who are joining in New England uh, and and in um, Miami, uh, and I think as well, those would definitely be uh, interested um, in what the USL has to say in these parts of the meeting. That said, yes, I, I, I do think that there are some more serious bids than just people kicking, testing the water. But it would have had an open door to, let's say, um, there was there's one prominent face in U.S. soccer who I'm not quite ready to speak about yet. Uh, this is something I didn't even throw in my notebook, but uh, someday I'll be writing about this probably. But they were uh, there kind of testing the waters to see about the potential of the League One club in a market that's near to their heart that they wanted to have as more of an academy based kind of grassroots club. So uh, things like that, that's an opportunity. And that's where like for the USL to have this part of the summit, um, it really does help inform them before they have to go through the vetting process. So if they move forward with the actual here's what we have to offer. Uh, portion of the discussions at least they know what they're getting into and you don't have to run the risk of frankly having another situation like fresno fc um where you're really kind of scrambling to find a resolution there 
So, you know, that was a perfect lead in. And obviously you don't have the show notes, but uh, but Fresno was going to be my next question. <laughs> okay. um, so so you broke in that uh, at least I think you broke it because it was the first place that I read about it. Yeah, it October was, 1st, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what was not only about them folding, but that now they might have a, a buyer of the franchise to move into USL League One. Um, you, you know, it. In in your experience down there, were people talking about you know expansion potential expansion clubs, kind of wondering if they should be a League One or a Championship team? Is that is that something that um, that you got the sense that some people were, or was everyone focused only on joining one league or the other? Whether it, I guess partially it's based on population, right? Because uh, U.S. Soccer has certain criteria for the number of teams you have to have uh, in certain market sizes, but but there are a lot that are in between or or close enough that if there's a big enough soccer fan base, you might be able to do either one or or either um, either league. So you, you know, what was your impression down there, if if any? Yeah, there's. I think it's very open minded, especially if you're talking about kind of the window shoppers, like the the person that I spoke with that I and and veiling very heavily right now. Um, they were very much keep, keep, I know I said league one, but that was just kind of my assessment. You know, there's, there's, there's no Buzzfeed quiz yet. That's, are you a championship market or a league one market? I don't think it's ever going to be that cut and dry. I mean, you would look on paper at a place like Des Moines and say, that's a perfect league one market that that's, that's a, that's a place that would be as close as any that you could imagine to being the next Madison. If that's what your barometer is going to be of a successful league one independent club. Um, and they're looking at the championship, right? So there's, um, there, there's some flexibility with that. Uh, I think that if we're speaking specifically about Fresno, though, um, and, and with the move to Monterey, which I also mentioned in my report back in October on The Athletic, uh, there's also a kind of somber dose of sobriety that comes around uh, the aftermath of that because that was a market that looked like it could have been every bit as successful as Albuquerque on paper, given the demographics, given the the proximity, the location, the, the, the market that doesn't have another professional club that you're going to be competing against. Uh, I think a lot of people were, were very optimistic about the potential of Fresno FC when they joined. And indeed, in their first year off field, it was strong. Second year on field up until, I mean, I guess maybe the, the, the club, the players were informed that it was 50-50 that they would kick a ball next year uh, up until that point they were in second place in the West and they had just knocked off Phoenix rising as well to end that 20 game winning streak. That's not bad. So they were strong by most measurables. The The big issue with them ended up being um, an owner who didn't quite understand what he was getting into and then did not deliver on those expectations for the league. Could that club have thrived if it immediately started in league one? Well, obviously league one didn't exist in 2018, right? But hypothetically, Let's say that they had kind of read the tea leaves and they waited for a 2019 launch, whether it was in Fresno or Monterey. I think that would have been much better. But just the realities of it is you do have to get that decision right. And so I think moving forward, there are more groups than previously who are looking and say, you know what, let's start in the third division. And I know it's going to be maybe a little tougher sell to neutral sports fans uh, living in the market. But at least that way, we're not going to be hamstringing ourselves. We have a lower operational cost for our first year or two. And then if it really is just so good that we can't contain it anymore or that we've really hit our ceiling, then we can look into the process of possibly moving up to the championship, whether that be, you know, five, 10 years down the road through promotion or that's through this you know, process. That basically, I guess the reverse Rochester Rhino, uh, unfortunately, or the reverse Richmond kicker uh, where you buy your way up. 
Right. So, again, perfect transition once again, because the next question was going to be about the Rochester Rhinos, actually. Um, so, you know, the the hint that you put in to your uh, article about the uh, about the winter meetings was that the Rhinos were maybe set to come back to USL League One in 2021, a very storied franchise that's still in the books. They, uh, you know, they're they're one of their um, employees wound up going on uh, a podcast just a couple of months ago and basically said that they were still looking for for stadia has there been any any movement on that 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 you know of i mean certainly it sounds like at least someone showed up to the winter meetings if nothing else yeah someone showed up to the winter meetings and yes i think there's also a part of it where um the uh I, I think there's a part of it where, you know, you just want to hear something more than you heard from Penn FC. And I know that that's the lowest bar to clear. Um, but those two clubs made the same hiatus decision uh, in unison. So I think with one, what you're seeing with Penn FC is that all of the employees were told to go home, that the club would cease operations. And at that point, the, the comms director, understandably, didn't think, you know, I should probably let the fans know that there isn't going to be a club next year. And so they just kind of sat uh, in silence longer than they should have. And that was something ultimately I reported as well, is that Penn FC will fold. Um, but with Rochester, the owner is, well, under, the fans are understandably annoyed and underwhelmed by ownership, by the lack of clear direction and the lack of a clear path towards playing in 2021. Um, all indications that I have from my sources are that they are still looking into it and the league is actively assisting when called upon to try to ensure that this historic club does play again in League One in 2021 and beyond. So I, I think that they are probably one of the teams that I've heard about because my sources have told me that there might be uh, four independent teams joining in 2021, and I would imagine Rochester is probably one of them. And when I heard that the, the four number, I'm hoping maybe we get three of those four because um, one of the issues that's obviously come up is where the distribution of MLS2 teams. So obviously most are in the championship, a few, Real Salt Lake, Red Bull 2, maybe sometimes. Bethlehem Steel now Philly Union too I guess they are as of a couple of days ago mm-hmm. um, you know they, they've had reasonably competitive teams but then a lot of the teams that are doing development don't have particularly good sides that they put on put on in uh, the USL championship and there's been talk that they're going to come down ha, ha, was there a lot of talk this uh, at these winter meetings about the distribution of MLS two teams and and what might go on there whether next year or the year after yeah, it's not going to be as cut and dry as it first sounded like it would be when my colleague Sam Stakel for The Athletic reported of um, the, the the league's preference to move every club. I think the timeline was going to be the 2021 season. Um, you would not be surprised to know that one of the biggest objectors to that was Real Monarchs. I don't think that that necessarily catalyzed their run to the title, but I will say that them winning the final in Louisville to stop a potential three-peat from one of the more successful independent clubs in the league, I think that does make the USL reconsider, okay, do we make this a blanket sort of at all, you know, some, some sort of big edict where you're saying, yes, all clubs are going to be forced to play in League One, or is it going to have to be case by case, in which case that's much messier, and that timeline is going to be much more fluid as well. So, uh, no, there's no clarity on it, but I will say the lack of clarity is partly because of the success of the Monarchs and then also the the in general 
um, player development success of clubs like uh, Philadelphia Union 2, like Sporting Kansas City 2, all of that. Out of curiosity, any thoughts on all the rebrands? Uh, you just mentioned Kansas City mm. too, which I'm not used to saying, and probably won't be for a little while. Um, you know, any any personal feelings on on you know two teams versus the independent branding that uh, a lot of uh, teams were were trying? Uh, I hate it. <laughs> I mean, if I'm just being completely honest, I absolutely hate it. I think it's it's. I, I get that you just want to say call it what it is, um, but I, I think that if you're rebranding and you're saying goodbye Bethlehem Steel, goodbye Swole Park Rangers, and you're just two, you are pretty clearly admitting how you view the club. Um, and and if look, I'm not a fan of any of these clubs, but uh, I don't think I would be encouraged by that. Just thinking. Uh, honestly and thinking critically about what that means Um, if we're talking other rebrands i mean charleston battery i think nailed it uh working with matthew wolf um i think that was a fantastic rebrand i thought that the uh the the modernization uh without losing most of the key elements and kind of ethos of that battery crest i think that was necessary and i think that will help with the new ownership coming in uh to really reinvigorate the fan base uh fc tulsa really didn't understand getting rid of the roughnecks I know they also have new ownership. Uh, I know that they have, uh, you know, ambitions of building a soccer stadium, which they spoke with me about over the summer uh, for a piece, once again, in The Athletic. Um, I, and I, I know that they, um, you know, they recognize the Roughnecks brands, the the Kraft brothers, the owners, went to Roughnecks games as kids, or at least heard about the success of the mighty old Roughnecks of the old NASL and other leagues. Um so I don't really get it. I, I, I didn't think the crest was actually that bad either. I know it, it, it was hard to tell. You couldn't tell it. It was a soccer crest. But, I mean, if, you, if you're going to talk about you know, crests that don't look like they're for soccer clubs, I have no idea why Louisville City rebranded. <laughs> I, I really don't. And so we're recording this on Monday, um, which is, the, the, I think, we're probably, what, eight, ten hours Removed. Yeah, I think yeah, exactly. Nine, nine hours. They dropped it uh, at at noon Eastern time. I think so. nine hours. What are they doing? You know, <laughs> I, I I think I understand. You know, they they Brad Est as the club president was very clear in saying, um, you know, we wanted to keep some of the branding elements from our launch when we were affiliated with Orlando City, while also making us our own distinct group. That's fine, but you had that. I don't think there was a single point over the last two, three years where I looked at that Louisville City crest and said, ah, that's an Orlando City knockoff. I thought that the gold worked really well. Purple and gold, it's royal, it's regal, it's for champions. They've won two titles. Um, That's fine. The the skyline was very obviously distinctly Louisville. Um, I I didn't see anything wrong with it. I honestly thought it was one of the five best uh, crest in the USL championship as it stands now with the, um, uh, the the crest that I think I said looks very much like a mold of both the Sacramento Kings and the LA Kings. Um, it's bottom half. It's probably bottom third of the USL just in terms of the lack of creativity and the lack of obvious what is this. I mean, the, the, the stars, which I'm not sure what the stars are for in the bottom half of it are cut off. You can't even see all of every star. And then the three fleur de lises are um, just, it's a weird mix, man. I don't know. (laughs) I think everyone's getting a little bit drunk on rebrands right now, and (laughs) I don't really get it. What are your thoughts, though? Am am I missing the mark on some of these? Uh, I, uh, yeah, I I don't 
have a particularly strong opinion on the the Louisville crest. I do like the new crest for the battery. Um, the, you know that that was like a refresh as a as opposed to a rebrand. I think, but yeah, I, Tulsa Roughnecks. I thought it was great. I mean, having I, I like having team names as opposed to just FC or SC. It's kind of boring. Yeah, I mean, let's have a here. let's have a name. You know, that, I mean, that's one of the great things about League One. I mean, you had you know Lansing Ignite until they folded, but you have Forward Madison and Greenville Triumph. I mean, I, I love those names. It's 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 fun and way more interesting, I think, and, and gives maybe an identity that um, some other generic names just don't. Um, totally agree. Yeah. So two more two more quick questions. I don't know how quick they'll be, but um, you've been very generous with your time tonight, Jeff. Really appreciate it. Um, of course. Uh, the all-star game. So obviously brand new, you know, USL's not had an all-star game before. Um, Mm -hmm. it seems pretty intriguing. I mean, obviously MLS is changing the way they're doing their all-star game and, and, you know, championship and league one will now send players to a USL all-star game. Firstly, given that I'm a league one fun podcast host, um, you know, do you have any? Was there any discussion about how the the players will be chosen and what the distribution might be between championship teams and League One teams? My understanding is it's just the championship. Uh, there's there's a chance that there will be some League One participation. Uh, I think that they're still working out some of the details, specifically about the roster. Uh, the the realities of this is that it, it's not going to be East versus West, which I know when you think All Star, you immediately think inter league. Instead, you're looking at that old MLS model that they just got rid of. Uh, which is for the MLS All-Stars to be playing against a club from another league. And it, it sounds like that's the direction that this All-Star game is going to be going based off of uh, what I heard prior to my report last week. Um, what's what's interesting about that is, you know, I, I think that there were a lot of people who were like, well, why? Because, I'm, you know, MLS just got rid of this. So why do we want to suddenly adopt that? Well, the reason MLS got rid of it is because the league progressed enough over the last 10 years they've been doing this format 13 14 years since they first played i think it was chelsea uh, or everton where they didn't need to have that sort of international spotlight they didn't need to have an anchor club where even if you don't watch in the at the time mls or if you don't watch the usl okay well maybe you're interested in everton in the in mls's case i don't think the usl would book a club like everton uh, frankly, I think that that would be a pretty daunting task. Um, and considering the MLS All-Stars struggled to, uh, with their designated players taking up most of the roster, would struggle to compete with a club like an Everton, not to say anything about a Real Madrid and Atletico, um, Chelsea, Bayern Munich. Uh, I don't know how the USL All-Stars would do in that. But if you're looking at a Liga Mekis club, if you're looking at a uh, championship, an English championship club, that might be kind of fun actually to put the championship against a club from the championship. Um, or how about that Sunderland? Really... That's a league. That's a League One team, right? Yeah, and Sunderland, <laughs> and Sunderland <laughs> actually has like a, a an outsized American following because of that incredible documentary that I'm like rewatching for the tenth time right now. Um, <laughs> so you know that might actually be a really good idea. Uh, but I, I think that that's the direction you'll go. San Antonio is a fine spot to put it at Toyota Field, um, and you'll you'll go from there. You know that way. Look, someday it's inevitable it would end up in Louisville. I'm sure, given the stadium. Uh, and as these stadiums pop up, well, here's your uh, marquee event to, to bring players from all over the country in, plus fans who are fans of this international club you would book. And by having it in Texas, by the way, if you bring in a Liga Mackey's club, uh, I, I think that you can really bring in uh, more of a fan base given the, the large Hispanic and Latino populations down in Texas. 
Were, were there any discussions about some of the other things like uh, MLS did with like having their um their their like you know the the um the under twenty game or I I think that's what they called it or or was it your yeah, the home homegrown game. the homegrown yeah. game yeah, uh, yeah. Were, any discussions like that like maybe it's you know given that that USL has you know the twenty under twenty maybe it could be you know U twenties and we can play U nineteen you know academy side from Mexico or something like that were there Man, other it, other anything yeah. else going on other than the one game. Man, it'd be fun. I, I think honestly, they're they're just to the point of finalizing this. I would guess that's a few years down the road. The homegrown homegrown game didn't actually happen until 2015 in Major League Soccer, so it was kind of how do we how do we make this more of a, a bigger event instead of just one exhibition game. So yeah. I, I think that was part of the reason they did that. And then with the skills challenge that they just launched this year, you know, they keep retooling the format after they feel like they've gotten the the main one down. And and frankly, I think it would be a little early. Um, I would love to see. You know, like the 20 under 20 versus whoever. The hard part is, uh, one, a lot of those players would be called up for the MLS homegrown game, considering a lot of them would come from MLS affiliates. And two, if you're going to want to do that event, you're probably going to want the players who've been developed at these clubs. So you might be looking five, six years down the road when that USL Academy League really takes off and those players graduate and start getting first team minutes. So you're not just having you know one player from San Antonio, one player from St. Louis, and then trying to fill it with the rest. Instead, when you are able to feature feature more players from more USL academies and really put them in the spotlight, uh, that's where that really shines. So my suggestion for the roster rules, by the way, for the All-Star game would be to reserve four or five of them for League One players and uh, and just play them the last 30 minutes of the of the game. Um, yeah, that's all. But, I like that. But, I like but that. That's, that. But that's my own uh, that's my own bias, obviously. Um, so finally, something. I thought was really interesting from your piece was you noted how in the championship there was this divide between East and West and they were talking about doing more interdivisional play because literally the first time that uh, a team from the East and the West met was in the final Um, is, you know, what were the types of formats that that were being talked about? And was that something that, you know, was like a major bone of contention and a major discussion uh, talking point? Or was it was it more in passing that people were mentioning that, you know, maybe we should have a little interdivisional play? Yeah, I I think it's something every club wants, you know, the clubs that well, okay, so maybe the clubs that don't have the same postseason aspirations that are purely in it for the development side of it or for the community aspects of it. They maybe aren't as bothered by the fact that they don't see these clubs. But when I was at the press conference in Louisville before uh, the USL Championship final last month, uh, I asked uh, John Hackworth about this, and he was uh, like, he actually used the phrase, you know, I'm getting up on my soapbox, meaning that this is something he's been talking about for a long time. Uh, for those clubs, it's ridiculous that you have no idea how you stack up. So then you have to play these absurd games as you're trying to figure out. I mean, you can watch tape, but like if you see. Real Monarchs beat El Paso in the conference final. Okay. Who in the East is comparable to El Paso? Who in the East is comparable to Real Monarchs? How are you actually able to scout? Okay, well, this player looks fast, but we don't know any of the players on the field because there's maybe one trade of a player from East to West every single year. So unless you're using that player as the gold standard and you're saying, okay, well, how does you know Lucky Masoso compare to you know, whoever else, you know, that's just, it's impossible. And so scouting it, you really are just focusing on your own and you're really hoping that what you see in tape is not to some weird sliding scale. Uh, I think every single club would like a better way to gauge that if for no other reason than scouting the final. 
So I think the, the, the first and much most likely uh, scenario will be something like England's FA Community Shield, where you have, uh, in this case, it would probably be the best team from the East and the best team from the West, whether that's regular season or playoffs, it's up in the air, um, would meet in like a preseason kind of final week before the regular season uh, fanfare game. Maybe you broadcast that one on ESPN just to kind of get fans excited for the new season. Maybe just put it on ESPN Plus so people remember what their passwords are uh, so that they're not frustrated on opening weekend. Take your pick. Um, but that seems like it's going to be ready to go this year. In future years, will they add it to the regular season calendar? Maybe. But at this point, I think they're still looking at, you know, kind of conference balance and being able to play every team home and home. Uh, so that gets you to, I mean, 32 games in the West and 34 in the East. So there's going to have to be some kind of schedule maneuvering given the 18-17 split this year. But it is something that uh, every club or that every club that I spoke with, people from all parts of the organization were mentioning. Um, it's not just for the final. It's for, uh, I'm just curious. I want to be able to see. Yes, I know travel costs are an issue, but we're starting to get over that. We're starting to be able to afford these more. Um, or, hey, we got that TV deal and we're getting these expansion fees. Don't you think maybe the USL could foot the bill a little bit so that we're playing each other twice a year? That kind of thing. Well, that's great. Jeff, thanks very much for coming on. You've been most generous with your time. Where can people connect with you and find your reporting? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jeff Reuter, R-U-E-T-E-R. Uh, and then you can find everything I write uh, on The Athletic at this point. Um, and you can find uh, all other kinds of reporting, whether it's soccer or otherwise. Um, yeah, it's kind of a one-stop shop. I don't know. I, there's probably a coupon on your Facebook timeline somewhere for 50% off your first year. Otherwise, go look for, uh, I think we have a set 30% deal. So just uh, shoot, me a, shoot me a tweet about that, and I'll, I'll try to get that code out there if any of you are listening. Great. So I can be found at Ira Jersey, and you can connect with League One Fun at League One and the, the number fun. The number fun. That's at like League that. One That's and great. the <laughs> <laughs> the number one and fun. Uh, Jason, my co-host, can who is on vacation at the moment. He uh, he's gallivanting around the world again. Uh, he gets more frequent flyer miles than I did when I used to work on Wall Street. But he is on Twitter at Home Sweet Soccer. Thank you for listening. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and check out bgn.fm for other great soccer podcasts and written content covering USL, USL League One, USL Championship, USL League Two, NWSL, Major League Soccer, and much more. Thanks to Roughneck Scarves, our official scarf supplier for Major League Soccer, United Soccer Leagues, and U.S. Soccer. Get custom scarves for your group or team at roughneckscarves.com. Until next time, hashtag support local soccer.